Today we celebrate what is arguably the most important event in history and the most important day of all time, the resurrection, the day on which Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the culmination of the most important things that establishes our relationship with God, faith and fact. Without Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, Christianity would most likely not exist. You and I would not be here together today. Without Christ's resurrection, a religion which honoured him as a great teacher would simply be an empty religion. Every purpose for which Jesus came to earth, his atonement for sin, would have been unfulfilled and the foundation of Christianity would fall apart. However, that's not the case and we can rejoice and celebrate with great joy because Jesus went through the absolutely unimaginable horror of the crucifixion and then to add to that, his father deserting him, turning away from him. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead, having satisfied the penalty for all sin, for all mankind, for all time. Today, we're looking at the resurrection through the Apostle Mark's eyes. Of all the accounts of the resurrection in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Mark's is the shortest. Even though Mark's is the shortest, it will do at least three things. It will challenge your thinking, it will bring a word of grace to your heart and a word of mission to challenge the course of your life. Firstly, there's a word of challenge to your thinking. Verse 6 says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen, he's not here. Now that statement is a challenge to anyone's thinking. Just ponder the historical context. Around the time of Jesus, there were dozens of messianic movements in Israel, both before and after Jesus came. And in many cases, the messianic leader was killed, often executed. And after the death of the leader, the movement simply collapsed. That is, all except this one. And not only did it not collapse, but it, it exploded. In the next couple of hundred years, it covered the Roman Empire, and today it's the largest movement on the face of the planet. So why is this movement different? Why is Christianity different? Because after Jesus was killed, he came back to life. And that's what changed everything, the empty tomb. That's why Christianity exploded and why it continues to grow around the world in very adverse circumstances because Christ gives hope. But if you ran a diagnostic belief tool across Australia to find the common objections to Christianity, near the top of the list of common objections would be this. People tend to say, the Gospels were written years later. It's all the stuff of myths and legends. They're not history. We don't know what the real events were. That's why we read Isaiah 53. 
this morning. Because hundreds of years before the gospel, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection was predicted. But you see, three times in Mark 15 and 16, Mark writes down the names of the women who saw all of the events, the death, the burial, and Jesus rising again. They're mentioned in the first verse of this chapter. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And you ask, why does he mention these people three times? Why the repetition? Mark keeps on telling us again and again. Because as Richard Borkham says, this is another way that he's letting us know that he's recording history. He's recording a historical account and not writing a legend. Because when he puts down the names of people, he is saying, you can go and talk with these women in person. You can check for yourself that what I've written is accurate. This is not how legends are written. This is history. In ancient Roman and Jewish literature, women were, were often marginalised. They were not seen to be credible witnesses and were not allowed to be eyewitnesses in legal cases. So the only possible explanation of these women being in the text was that if they had actually seen the risen Lord Jesus. So Mark is challenging us. He's saying, this is a reliable historical document. This really happened. His intention is for you to see there's no difference between the crucifixion and the resurrection, either historically or factually. But our fellow Australians might say, you think this is a pretty strong case, do you? But weren't ancient people gullible? And that's why they believed in miracles? And we modern people, we're too sophisticated for that. But Mark himself challenges you on that. Three times in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Mark records how Jesus said that he was going to... Mark records how Jesus said that he was going to rise again from the dead. And remember, Mark is economical with words. So if he records Jesus saying it three times, how many times did he actually tell them? It means that Jesus was saying it over and over and over again. He told his disciples that he would rise again on the third day. So did you wonder, knowing that, why the disciples weren't counting and seeing the third day and starting to ask and ponder. Let's go and have a look. The strange thing is, nobody says a thing. And not just that, they don't expect the resurrection to happen. You notice the women too. After the Sabbath, they went and bought spices. You don't put spices on a living body, only a dead one. So these people were in deep gloom and they were focusing on the natural, not what Jesus had said. But then I wonder what you and I would do because we haven't seen too many people coming to life again 
after they've died. The angel says to the women, well, he did tell you about it. In verse 17, he said to them, go to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. But they don't get it. We read, they went out and fled from the tomb. The incredible point being made is this. The resurrection was inconceivable for them. The Greeks didn't believe in resurrection because salvation was liberation of the soul from the body. The Jews believed in a general resurrection but had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. Yet many of the first Christians were Jews, Jews who had come to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This was totally contrary to the worldview they had grown up with. So why had they come to believe? They'd come to believe because they had let the evidence for the resurrection challenge their worldview and their thinking. More than that, the presence of the angel to communicate the reality of the resurrection is Mark's way of confirming that this can only be grasped through a word of revelation received by faith. Because if you don't believe it, then you have to come up with an alternative explanation as to why hundreds of other people said they saw him and why it changed their lives and why they spent their lives preaching it and why they willingly died for it. For if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Jesus would have simply been no more than a single line in Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews. Now let me encourage you. I saw that in a survey done in 2009 that 31% of Australians believe in the resurrection. That 35% did not believe it. While others were less sure. I was amazed at the number of people saying they believed and many seeing it as a possibility. However, if we look at how few people regularly worship the Lord with others on a regular basis. You have to wonder today whether Australians are intelligent or they're being intellectually lazy. They're not letting the resurrection and the evidence challenge them. They just muddle along, giving it hardly a thought. Do you allow it to challenge you? Has it made a difference to your life? Secondly, <clears throat> we learn the resurrection is a word of grace for the heart. Did you notice in verse 7, Jesus says, but go tell his disciples, no, the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. Now that's a pretty amazing thing to say. These disciples had just fled the scene of the cross and hidden. We note that it's only some women who watched the proceedings and where Jesus was buried. Before that, Peter has denied Jesus three times. Jesus does not say, tell those faithless backstabbing cowards they better grovel if they want a place in my movement. There's none of that. What does Jesus do? He seeks to restore them. And what do you think? 
when he mentions the word Peter? What if Jesus had said, but go tell his disciples that he's going before you into Galilee? What if Jesus, what if um, Peter had been left out? More to the point, why is Peter singled out? Notice that it's the disciples and Peter. This is practically and theologically profound. If Jesus had not mentioned Peter's name, Peter might have said, you guys go, I've blown my chances. I messed up big time. He surely can't be including me. You go yourselves. What Peter did was a lot worse than what everyone else had done. If you remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. By Jesus including Peter, he's saying, I have loving plans for my disciples. And that means you too, Peter. It's pastorally practical and theologically profound. Peter messed up big time, but Peter ends up becoming the leader of the church. And because he messed up big time, his repentance, his grasp of Jesus' grace, his sorrow is very deep. Religion understands that salvation is by strength. Christianity is all of grace. So acknowledging your failure enhances the flow of God's power in your life. But this is not the way the world looks at it. Why? Because it's hard to admit that we've failed. We don't like doing it. We blame whoever we can. But if you let your failure drive you deeper into the gospel, so you see the costliness of Jesus' love and the radicalness of his grace, and you see your own flaws, but you also see how infallibly and infinitely and endlessly you are loved by Christ. You become more humble and more bold at the same time. Nothing else in the world does that. It gives you a greater self-knowledge. And ironically, you can be more self-forgetful. You grow spiritually because you repent greatly and love deeply. This is the soil from which the best leaders, counsellors and parents grow. This is a word of great grace. And this word comes at the resurrection, the day when God stamped across human history your sins paid in full so that nobody can miss it. God can come to you with a word of grace saying, no matter how bad you've been, no matter what a mess you've made of your life, how hopeless you feel to achieve anything good for him, if you recognise his grace And what he accomplished for you, like Peter did, the resurrection has paid it all in full. And you will be completely forgiven. You'll be no less forgiven than someone seems to have little to forgive. You'll both be completely forgiven. You too will both be clean before him. So take the word for your mind and let it challenge your worldview. Take the word for your heart and let it soften you and change you. Thirdly, a word of mission that can reshape the whole way you live in the world. The angel says, verse 6, Do not be alarmed, but go 
Tell people about the resurrection. Go and communicate in every way about the resurrection. The resurrection is a key part of bringing about what the Old Testament prophets wrote about. So what if you believe the resurrection is true? You believe that Jesus has died to save you, to redirect your eternal trajectory irrevocably towards God. You believe that God has accepted you for Jesus' sake through an act of supreme grace. You're a part of the kingdom of God. What then? Does the resurrection mean anything for your life now? Yes, it does. Isaiah, Amos and many of the prophets wrote about what God wants to bring about in the future. The kingdom of God. The new heaven and new earth. A healed material creation. Isaiah tells about it in chapter 11, verses 6, 8 and 9. The wolf, will lie down, uh, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a child will lead them. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're talking about a time of absolute wholeness and well-being, physically, spiritually, socially and economically. The kingdom of God, the Jewish word shalom, complete healing of all relationships in creation. We'll be reconciled to God, to nature, to one another and to ourselves. And to the extent that that future is real to you. It will change everything about how you will live in the present. Because the resurrection proves that God loves people and he loves this world. Every other religion sees salvation as escape from this material world. When Jesus showed the disciples his hands and his feet, he was showing them his scars. The last time the disciples saw Jesus they thought those scars were ruining their lives. Why is this important? Seeing Jesus with his scars reminds us what he did for them. And the scars they thought ruined their lives, actually saved their lives, actually made their lives worthwhile. Remember, those scars will have helped many of them endure their own crucifixions. How about you? Do you believe the resurrection really happened? Or do you think it's just a nice symbol? Can you imagine the preachers of the early church going out into the city and the highways and the byways, preaching to the poor and the slaves, saying, the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't really happen, but it's a wonderful symbol of how love triumphs over evil. So let's be nice to one another. That would simply never have changed anyone's life. It would never have changed the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul testified, they saw him, they touched him, he arose. That proves the power of God is real. It has come into this broken world and triumphed. Someday Christ is going to return and put everything right. 
on the day of the Lord, the day that God makes everything right, the day that everything sad becomes untrue. On that day, the same thing will happen to your hurts and sadness. You'll find that the worst things that have ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your eternal delight. On that day it will be turned inside out and you will know joy beyond the walls of the world. So I challenge you to live in the light of the resurrection and renewal of this world and of yourself in a glorious, never-ending, joyful experience of grace. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, it's an incredible thing that you, the one true God, are interested in us, graciously guiding and directing our lives. Sometimes we can see it more clearly after the events than when we were going through them. Knowing that Jesus rose again from the dead helps us to put our hope in you. Your word points to the day when we will spend eternity with you. The things of this world will pass away, but our lives will be involved in a new world in which you are king. We thank you and praise you for, for revealing this to us. Help us to live our lives with this eternal focus and know that on the other side of the challenges we face here, you are waiting to receive us, to spend eternity with you in a wonderful place. We praise you because of what Jesus accomplished to give us this hope. Amen.